Yeah, that's Hazel Dickens from the Coalfields of West Virginia, written actually almost a century ago, the struggle to unionize impoverished miners and their families. And they, of course, lived a simple lesson, united you stand, divided we fall, folks. And your welfare ain't on that rich man's mind, that's for sure. It's not on the mind of big pharma or the government or the companies who are robbing and killing us behind the COVID camouflage. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Welcome to Here We Stand. It's January 23rd, and an important date for me. This is the voice of the resistance and the republic here every week, but this special day for me is today, is the 27th anniversary of my firing by the United Church of Canada for bringing out the crimes of genocide in their local so-called residential school in Port Alberni on Canada's west coast. Well, 27 years later, folks, still having fun, still having learned a lot, trying to apply those lessons to the continuing genocidal crimes being done against all of us now. It isn't just Indians on reservations who can't refuse medical treatment. It's been that way for the last 150 years in Canada. Now it's all of us, but we're united on that basis, as Hazel Dickens taught us today. You can follow all of her work, murderbydecree.com, under ITCCS, the updates in the archives of the tribunal, the IT, International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State. Now, today, we're carrying on with the famous court verdict from last week that convicted Big Pharma, the government, the churches, the usual genocidal actors of crimes against humanity, issued arrest warrants and confiscation orders, and gave people warrants with which they can lawfully refuse vaccinations and all the COVID police state measures. Now, today we're going to do that overview, but I want to address a few things beforehand. We're going to look at hard evidence out of the docket that um, was uh, produced by the court and the docket of evidence. We're going to use some examples looking at particular individuals who are convicted on the west coast of Canada, which is the real hotspot, as we talked about last time, the real hotspot in the ongoing war of genocide, because that's where the Chinese... Big Pharma, these genocidal actors are working actively, and we'll get into that evidence. But before we do that, I want to address a number of the questions you folks had, because what's really wonderful about this movement is that it's drawing in huge numbers of people now. It isn't just the faithful few anymore who are knowledgeable after having lived through this for many years, and yet some of the veterans of our movement are kind of world-weary, and they're looking to the next generation. But the next generation, even though it has the energy and the zeal, they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the hard evidence. And we keep getting a lot of basic questions being asked to us. Things like, uh, who are you anyway? We haven't heard of you before, which is too bad because we were all over the Internet until about five to ten years ago. And then, of course, Big Pharma, which owns Google and, and uh, YouTube, continually censor off any evidence of this genocide over the years. So, of course, people today don't have a lot of memory when their memory is derived simply from the internet and not other sources. But people haven't heard from us, and they continually confuse us with groups like the um, uh, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, or the International Criminal Court, the ICC. People say, we've written to them and they've never heard of you. Well, that's true. They haven't, uh, because we are neither of those. We are the International Common Law Court of Justice. That was a common law court convened uh, by a citizen's tribunal in the year 2010, and it's done three cases now. The first case convicted and drove from office Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, along with three other cardinals, convicted the Queen of England, Canada, and its churches for genocide. Some of that history is at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS, along with all of our warrants. Just look in the latest updates posting. But a more basic question, uh, besides those you know things that can be easily answered, it's a question of, well, where do we get our authority from? And we keep getting this. About It's interesting because about 80% of the people who write in now are saying, can you really convict somebody like that and then enforce your own warrants and arrest them? Where is your authority coming from? Now, we're going to get into that. But before I forget, I want to give some, you some very thrilling announcements about how people are using our warrants. I want to give you two examples. In Over the last week, we have been getting emails from literally dozens of countries, Tanzania, Barbados, uh, all over Europe and Asia, you know, the Ukraine, Sweden, Russia, Hong Kong, Philippines, and of course, all over North America and Europe. People 
running off the warrants and going into places to seize the now banned and unlawful COVID, vac- COVID vaccinations because these shots were developed through genocide and mass murder, especially of Native children on whom these drugs were unlawfully uh, tested, and they killed many of them. We're going to get into that evidence a bit later. So people are using that warrant. They're going to police, and they're, they're trying to seize these drugs. Now, I want to give you two examples of what happened. In South Wales, a group of four people went in, and they notified the local police in their Welsh town that they were doing this. The police um, tried to arrest them, but then the doo-doo hit the fan, and people from all over England heard about it and began doing similar actions. And as a result, the, uh, the, the police announced that they don't want to uh, play that enforcement any role, and they've actually refused to arrest any more people. That came out of uh, conducts we have in London. The police all over England now are saying, this is too much trouble, we're backing off, we're not going to stop people when they do this. And this is the educational process. People have been giving to the police copies of the warrant and saying this is lawful. This is passed by the citizens. It has just the same effect under the law, as a matter of fact, more effect, because it's coming out of people's lawful decisions, sovereign decisions as freeborn men and women, rather than a dictate of some health bureaucrat not coming out of a court, not coming out of a legislature, which is what these COVID measures are. So uh, that's the first one. The second thing that happened was in Toulon, which is a port on the south of France on the Mediterranean. I just got noticed this morning. A group of people went in, and instead of going to the police, they went to the workers, uh, the employees at one of these vaccine distribution sites, a health center. And they started talking to the, uh, the employees and said, look, if you go to work, you might face arrest as being an accessory to a crime. And it's, uh, the word got around. They spoke to their union. And in fact, a lot of them didn't show up to work. So the vaccination distribution site has been shut down because the workers didn't show up. It's like Hazel Dickens said in that song, you know, workers stand together, rely on your own kind. Don't trust the rich man. Bang, you win. So these are messages that are working now. And in response, we are getting indications that the big pharma, the government, the media controlled by both of them are freaking right out. And one sign of that is always a good sign is when they start attacking me <laughs> over the Internet. And the, the smear Kevin Annett, smear common law court uh, people are ramping way up. Now, that's always a good sign. It's a sign we're having an impact. So um, those are good things to keep in mind. Now, again, you can get copies of the warrant and take action. Just write to uh, ITCCS office at protonmail.com. Go to murderbydecree.com uh, under ITCCS. You'll see it at the top of the uh, the banner headlines. And under ITCCS, there's both uh, the archives of the tribunal and also breaking news, the, the ITCCS updates. And that's in the latest posting. We're beneath all the photos and everything. You can see all of our warrants as PDFs. You can print them right off. And also, we need people to translate them. We now have it in five different languages, but if you're in the Philippines or some other place, go ahead and translate. So anyway, that's the recent updates and good news. Now, getting back to the whole question of authority. What makes something lawful? Well, the short answer is something is made lawful when it agrees with natural law and when it's enacted by the people themselves. This is something we don't realize. You know, people go around thinking they're free, but then the first basic question is, can I do this? Well, of course you can do it. As long as you're not harming anybody, you have the right to act on your own lawful authority. And in fact, we know from experience that it's these shots that are harming people, not us. We are simply exercising our right under the Nuremberg Convention of 1946 to refuse any medical treatment that's imposed without our consent. That's international law, folks. And it is not superseded by corporate needs and government dictates. Now, I want to guide you in this discussion about where does our authority come from. It's right found in our common law training manual. You can find this online. Uh, go to murderbydecree.com. You'll see a list of all of our books. How to order it. It's called Establishing the Reign of Natural Liberty, a common law training man- manual. And um, we're going to start. You just go to um, page 11. And we talked about natural law. If something agrees with natural law, then it's lawful. Well, what natural law is, it's the law of the universe. And we can sum that up in three basic principles. All things exist and are held in common. Uh, That is, everybody has the right to the world and its resources, no one over anyone else. That's just the way nature gives it to us. 
free and equal to everybody. By extension, no one has any natural authority over another. And the famous quote from Jean-Jacques Rousseau in The Social Contract, when he said, since no man has a natural authority over his fellow, and force creates no right, and that's an important one, forcing somebody to do something doesn't make it right. Nobody has natural authority over his fellow. Force creates no right. We must conclude that contracts form the basis of all legitimate authority among men and women. That means if you don't have an agreement with somebody, you're not obligated to obey them at all. Well, show me the contract or covenant or agreement between us and Big Pharma. They can't tell us what to do if we don't agree. It's that simple. And finally, the third axiom of natural law, the law does harm to no one. The law doesn't tell you that you're arrested simply for handing a cop a warrant, which is what they try to do all the time. No, that anything, and there's this famous quote from uh, John Knox, the who led the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, among my people. He said that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Well, what that means, it comes from a, a very, uh, actually, one of my distant relatives, believe it or not. His name was George Buchanan. He was a humanist scholar in Scotland. And in 1579, he wrote a book, basically, that said that people are inherently sovereign, that authority comes from people, not from kings, not from popes. Let me just uh, read a description here, because this forms the basis of everything we're doing. It's not some abstract idea. It's coming out of our lived experience. George Buchanan said that all political authority ultimately belongs to the people who come together to elect someone, whether a king or a body of magistrates to manage their affairs. The people are more powerful than the rulers because they're free to remove them at will. And here's a quote. The people have the right to confer authority on whomever they wish or to withdraw it from whoever they wish. When rulers fail to act in the people's interest, even the lowest and poorest of people have the sacred right and duty to resist that tyrant and replace him and overthrow him if necessary to maintain their God-given liberties. Now, that's, that filtered up into the U.S. Declaration of Independence, into every human rights convention, into the basis of common law and what we're doing. So it's that simple. We have the right to not only say no to tyranny that has been imposed without our consent, but we can impose our own ruling on that. We can create our own courts. We can impose our own verdict and enforce it with our own officers and deputizing other police to do that. So it's right in our common law traditions. They're trying to wipe out those traditions. They're trying all the time to get us to forget all that stuff. But we're reviving that memory all the time. And this is an essential book. Now, if you can't afford to get a copy of uh, a common law training manual, um, if you can't afford the $10 it costs, um, we will send you a PDF of it so you can run it off and share it. And we, by the way, there's now eight new local groups that have affiliated with our tribunal and our court. Uh, people who, want it, who are actively organizing now and are using our verdicts all over the place and our warrants. So we will send to anybody a copy of the, you know, this PDF. Now, another point here is that um, about the common law court itself, and people keep saying, well, how do we actually go about forming it? Well, in this book, the common law training manual, it's all there, the 12 steps of how to form a common law court. And don't forget, first of all, another question you have is, well, do these verdicts apply to my country? And they'll, they'll say what country that is. The common law verdict has universal jurisdiction. It arises out of natural law, and it doesn't matter if your government doesn't recognize it or not, or whether you come from a country that doesn't have common law tradition, like the English-speaking world does. Common law is inherent in all of us and hence has universal jurisdiction. It can be established in any country or community, and common law courts arise from that universal jurisdiction. They're established when any number of men and women come together to judge a matter of concern for themselves. And especially when the courts and the governments are part of the crime, we have the right to convene those courts. Now, the power of what we did was demonstrated in our first common law court when we forced Pope Benedict from office, when he who was still hiding out in the Vatican and three cardinals were all forced out of office when the Spanish government notified them that they could face arrest if they came to Spain based on the verdicts uh, in our in our common law courts. So it shows you that other courts can act on our decisions. Verdicts 
and warrants, arrest warrants can be issued by other courts based on our decisions. So what I'm trying to tell you folks here is that we have great power, but those few who are ruling over the many always rule by fear and ignorance and trying to get us convinced that we have to go to them to ask them for authority, you know, to think or act. You know, people say, well, none of the existing uh, courts seem to recognize you folks. Well, it doesn't matter if they recognize us or not. We don't need their permission. You don't need the parental figure to tell you what to do. And that's something we're going to talk about a bit later in the show. What we're really dealing with here is people's um, inability to grow up and to think for themselves. We, uh, we're all raised in a state of dependency as children. And normally, as you evolve, you become independent, although many of us be, remain codependent. We just transfer the, the uh, uh, dependency on our parents onto new authority figures, parental figures like a judge, a government figure, a pope, priest, whoever. And that doesn't get us anywhere. It maintains the dependency. So what we're going through now in this whole struggle is the recognition that this is a great way for the humanity to wake up, to see the inherent power within all of us. And that's exactly what we're doing. So um, in that regard, uh, by the way, in about 10 minutes at the bottom there, we're going to play something in that regard, a short little clip which describes what we're doing. According to a guy called Henry David Thoreau, he was an American writer in the 1800s who wrote the seminal work called Civil Disobedience how and why citizens can say no to laws imposed by the government or courts if it goes against their conscience and how to say no to the government itself. That's going to be you know, part of what they're doing. But it's important to remember that this all has a lawful basis, everything we're doing. The real question now is, are we going to act on it? And that's what we're going to talk about briefly now about enforcement. Um, and the enforcement comes from ourselves. And I want to give you an example of how we go about doing that. Um, you simply do it. You never do it by yourself. You always have somebody there to record the action and you get a large group of people together. Now this happened, I'll give you an example. In Liverpool, England, in the year 2010, I believe, 600 people got together because a local magistrate was imposing unlawful taxes on the local county. So these 600 people got together, they went into his court, they removed him from the bench, they removed him from his authority, and they nullified the county tax, the illegal county tax, and they declared a common law court in Birkenhead, a suburb of Liverpool. That was all over the internet until, of course, the, beast, the British government censored it off after about a month. But they, people did that, because when people act together, it makes it lawful. We make our own authority and the law. We've been brainwashed to think that taking the law into your own hands is a bad thing. No, it's the opposite. When the law is being violated um, constantly by the authorities themselves, then that's up to the people to reestablish the rule of law, and that's all we're doing. Now, before the break, I want to touch on some of the evidence. I promised that we're getting more of the docket of evidence. Now, this is material taken from the court case that was just uh, concluded, and involving Big Farm and the others. It's, it's from the record of the court dated October 9th, 2021. This court met for nearly four months. And it involves people, you might have noticed uh, the email posting you got, and it had a photo, three different photos of people. One, uh, that uh, photo of Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer. Another was a guy called Gary Patterson, who's the former moderator of the United Church of Canada. And the third was a, a United Church minister called Phil Spencer on Vancouver Island. Now, all three of these individuals were involved in something and are involved in two things. In medical genocide, Pfizer was using Native children in Indian hospitals to, for experimental purposes for decades, and many of those children died. They were working with the United Church. The United Church would hand over Indigenous children to be medically experimented on at the United Church hospitals in Bella Bella, British Columbia, the RW Large Hospital. The Nanaimo Indian Hospital, run by the Canadian military and the United Church, and um, six other locations across Canada. So these people are all linked. Um, and the Gary Patterson, former moderator of the United Church, he was, is directly linked to something called the 12 Mile Club. Now that operates out of Vancouver. It's a child trafficking network. It's referred to as the 12 Mile Club. 
because from our insiders and from years of research and eyewitnesses who've seen these things, it refers to the 12-mile territorial limit outside off the British Columbia coast. And basically, wealthy people take children, they uh, make snuff films, they torture them, they kill them on film, they dump their bodies overboard outside the 12-mile territorial limit. Now, this Gary Patterson is not only linked to that, but he was um, the minister at what's called St. Andrew's Wesley United Church. And those of you in Vancouver, go look at it. It's right on Burrard Street, right next door to the murderous St. Paul's Hospital, where children were killed over generations in these drug testing experiments. It's the hospital where our brother, William Coombs, who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children. It was a hospital where they medically murdered him with arsenic poisoning injection, according to Chloe Kirker, his nurse. And again, all of this is online, murderbydecree.com. And there's a tunnel system connecting St. Paul's Hospital, the Vancouver Club, uh, St. Andrew's Wesley United Church, and all three of those Catholic and Anglican churches along Burrard Street there. And finally, Phil Spencer, he's especially notorious. He happened to be one of the people who 27 years ago today helped force me out of my pulpit and helped destroy my family in divorce court. He did that because unbeknownst to, to me, uh, and by working with Native people, I was stumbling across the evidence of this 12-mile club and the West Coast Marine Mission, which is where the United Catholic and Anglican clergy would go up and down the coast in their mission boats, grab children, and the children would never be seen again. They don't not only be incarcerated in the so-called Indian residential school death camps, but they would disappear, thrown overboard after being used. That was done through the Thomas Crosby mission boat. Well, um, Phil Spencer was involved in covering that stuff up. He's the one who organized my firing and the destruction of my family and profession consistently over many years because I didn't realize I was stumbling over this stuff by allowing Native people to speak from my pulpit. They began to mention these things. So Spencer went on to also work with the Chinese on Vancouver Island in destroying all of our common law assemblies, the Republic assemblies. There were five of them, and they were all destroyed last year through classic black shop methods, because one of those assemblies in Parksville, British Columbia, had issued an arrest warrant against Phil Spencer and Foster Free. They're the United Church clergy in Parksville and Qualicum Beach, British Columbia, central Vancouver Island. Arrest warrants were issued for them. Our sheriff was on the verge of going out the next morning to arrest both of them when the RCMP showed up and arrested him, and our entire law, uh, assembly was destroyed from within. Uh, threats of arrest, uh, death threats, all of that, right as we're about to arrest these people. So these are standing arrest warrants for those in Vancouver Island. You can run off our uh, arrest warrant against Phil Spencer and go and detain him. That's the law. Um, there'll be more information from that. If any of you are on the West Coast, and I know we got a number of emails from groups that are operating there, contact us. We'll put you in touch with our Republican court sheriffs on Vancouver Island to coordinate these arrests. That's those three people. That's an example of the um, information on our docket. Now, the docket of evidence is going to be released in stages because there's ongoing court cases being brought against the other big pharma companies. And we can't compromise witnesses and evidence by releasing too much right away. But there is information that we will link. We're going to post it this week related to the three individuals I just mentioned and other clergy who are involved in, in the West Coast Marine Mission on Vancouver Island that still traffic, torture, and kill children and hand them over to the Chinese for organ trafficking, uh, for drug testing, and all these other things. Uh, the Chinese are a big part of that. They've essentially taken over British Columbia thanks to the Trudeau government and the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which allows them to station their own troops on Canadian soil. And here are some of the other clergy that are involved in that uh, 12-mile club in the West Coast Marine Mission. Art Anderson, Bill Howie, Oliver Howard, Cameron Reed, now deceased missionary Dr. George Darby, W.O. McKenzie, Hugh McCurville, and the politicians Jim Manley, Paul Manley, and John Kishore, all formerly with the NDP and the Green Party, but all involved in that West Coast Marine Mission child trafficking and killing network. So that's some of the evidence, the names, what they're doing, um, and more. There's a lot more coming. Um, and like I say, this will be posted uh, soon on the murderbydecree.com site, uh, the various excerpts from the docket of evidence. This one uh, set of evidence came from October 9th, 
2021 in the court docket. And um, I think what we'll do now, give my voice a rest. We're going to listen to uh, this short little account of uh, Henry Thoreau, his essay on civil disobedience, and we'll be back after that. In March 1845, the United States acquired a new president, James K. Polk, a forceful, aggressive political outsider, intent on strengthening his country and asserting its preeminence in front of other world powers, especially Mexico and Great Britain. Within a year of his inauguration, he had declared full-scale war on Mexico because of squabbles over the Texan border, and was soon rattling his sabre at Britain over the ownership of Oregon. To complete the picture, Polk was a vigorous defender of slavery, who dismissed the arguments of abolitionists as naive and sentimental. Polk was a popular president, admired by many for his gung-ho manner, but a sizable minority of the citizenry disliked him intensely. One especially committed opponent was a writer from Massachusetts called Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau is now a canonical American literary figure, studied in every high school for his lyrical masterpiece, Walden. But there is another, more political side to Thoreau, now usually airbrushed out of his story, which came to the fore in relation to the president. Thoreau quickly realised that he was opposed to everything Polk stood for. He hated what became the Mexican-American War, instinctively siding with the losing Mexican side. He was wary of Polk's squabbles with Britain and was appalled by the administration's policy of hunting down and returning runaway slaves to their masters in the South. Thoreau's anger against his president found its impassioned expression in an essay he published in 1849, now known as Civil Disobedience. At the heart of the essay is the question of what an honest citizen should do about a president he or she wholeheartedly opposes. The prevailing view was that because Polk had won a majority, those who were against him should now fall silent. It should, it was often said, be the duty of a good citizen to fold away their objections and just respect the will of the majority. But this was precisely the point Thoreau wished to probe and upturn. He suggested that true patriots were not those who blindly followed their administration. They were those who followed their own consciences, and in particular, the principles of reason. Thoreau wished to redistribute prestige away from blinkered obedience towards independent thought. What marked out a noble citizen of the Republic, a real American, was not, in Thoreau's view, that they respectfully shut up, but that they thought for themselves every day of an administration's life. On the basis of just this kind of independent thinking, Thoreau signalled a radical opposition to Polk's term. He denounced the Mexican-American War, the repatriation of slaves, and the outlook of the government more generally. And so as to underline his opposition, Thoreau held back payment of his taxes. In July 1846, he walked into Concord, Massachusetts to get his shoes repaired and was promptly arrested and thrown into the town's jail. Thoreau saw nothing undignified about spending some time behind bars. As he wrote, Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is a prison. All machines have their friction, Thoreau admitted, but when injustice is too great, you should let your life be a counter-friction to stop the machine. Thoreau didn't advocate the non-payment of taxes as a rule, and in fact a well-meaning aunt soon paid his bill. The non-payment was just one example of the many non-violent ways that a democratically elected government could and should be resisted whenever its actions veer into aggression or unreason. An election may settle who the president might be, but it doesn't determine that everything the president does is right or that one should simply do nothing until the next election. Above all, Thoreau hated political passivity. Sarcastically, he wrote, There are thousands who are, in opinion, opposed to slavery and to the war, who yet, in effect, do nothing to put an end to them, who, esteeming themselves children of Washington and Franklin, sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and do nothing. This would not be Thoreau's way. How does it become a man to behave towards this American government today? I answer that he cannot without disgrace be associated with it. Thoreau argued that the citizen must never just 
resign his conscience to the legislation and put himself at the service of some unscrupulous man in power. Thoreau mocked that most legislators, politicians, lawyers, ministers and office holders are as likely to serve the devil without intending it as God. Thoreau would not be such a servant. This most American of writers knew exactly whom it was right for him to serve, his own mind and conscience. Yes, beautiful. And beautiful quote I love from Thoreau, Henry Thoreau, is, I was not born to be forced. Now, let's think about that for a minute. The very fact that someone is forcing you to do something means either it's unlawful and they want to shut you up and make you afraid so that you can't look at the fact that it's criminal what they're doing, or they've got their own agenda that they don't want you to know about. So, you know, I, I don't have to convince any of you that that's exactly what's going on with these so-called COVID measures. It's not about a disease. It's not even about a vaccine. It's about a global corporate police state. And, you know, one of my favorite guys, Sun Tzu in The Art of War, says, you'll lose every battle unless you know your enemy and know yourself. And some friends the other day went to yet another rally in Vancouver, a freedom rally, and they every week people get together at the downtown art gallery and they stand around and hear the same old protests about the same old issues but they never do anything they just have the rally and then people go home and what that is is a sign of dependency because we think if we make a, a, a noise loudly and long enough the parental figure will hear us and be do the right thing but no we realize now we're in a civil war we're in a transition to a new kind of society doesn't need the rule of law or democracy so-called democracy anymore as if we ever had it and it's kind of funny because people are suddenly aware that we're living under a genocidal police state. Well, talk to a Native person and they can tell you it's been happening to them for a hell of a long time. So, yeah, this is an awakening, but we have to move beyond our usual responses. And uh, part of that is an act of heart. It isn't about learning a lot of facts. And I don't mean to do that on this show. I don't mean to overwhelm people with a lot of evidence because after a while, the evidence, while necessary as a, as a spotlight on the crime, and a way to arm ourselves, it can have the effect of psychically numbing us. And I saw this often in the work we did when we first brought out the truth over 20 years ago, and we're holding our first protest of the churches and educationals. You know, people had, a, and still do, have kind of a voyeuristic interest in all the details of what happened to these poor children, but then they go away and do nothing because they feel they can't do anything. Either by saying, well, it happened in the past. No, it didn't. It's still going on. And by the way, under the law, uh, there's no statute of limitation on murder. So when you did a crime even 100 years ago, you're still liable for it, you and your institution. It's one of the bases on which we convicted Joe Ratzinger and forced him out of office. It's ongoing. And it's an ongoing crime against humanity, which is now being deployed against all of us. So these are really basic questions that are allow forcing us, really allowing us to look at ourselves. And uh, there's another really, uh, in, if you go through the common law training manual, there's a picture uh, of a woman standing with her arms wide open, appealing to all these soldiers with bayonets pointed outwards towards her and other peace protesters. It's actually from the Vietnam War protest in Washington in the late 60s. And it's amazing. These young guys in helmets are staring at her, kind of wide-eyed. She's standing there unarmed with her arms open, trying to speak to them about the war. And this woman, Barbara Stelling, actually, I knew um, one of her relatives. They used to go down to what's called the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia. It's where people, police and military are brought from all over the world to learn torture and counterinsurgency methods. And there's this huge protest now that happens vigil every year at School of the Americas. And they call it the names of people who've been murdered by their various governments, thanks to the training they get at the School of the Americas. And she said, here's a quote from her, we were there every day trying to talk to the young soldiers about the killers they were defending. Nothing we said seemed to get through to them until the day we began reading out the names of the people who were tortured to death. Then I saw one young National Guardsman start to wink back his tears, and then I knew we would win. It's always a struggle for hearts and minds. And... We break through the fear and ignorance that the, they're the only tools of our, well, call them an adversary, but 
you know, they need to be brought over too. ultimately, you know, these elites who try to own and run the world just for themselves and keep all of us fighting each other so they can do that. But they don't want us to break through in that, that battle for hearts and minds to the people on the ground as we're beginning to now. Those police in Wales and other countries, those employees in Toulon, France, who said, we're not coming into work. The cops said, we're not enforcing this anymore. The over 2,000 police in Toronto, Canada, who said, we're not taking a shot. That's what happened just before a revolution. You know, the, the, the army and the, and the police go over to the revolution and then the czar falls. You know, that's happened in history. It happens time and again. We see it playing out right now. We just have to not turn our ire on each other. We have to close ranks, but on the basis of knowledge and experience. And this is what we're doing right now. Now, I do want to share some more of that hard evidence, but to take a break from that, for the next few minutes, I want to read, uh, to put a human face on a lot of this. Um, one of my books is called Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. Now, these four guys are all native survivors of the death camps that the criminals still call residential schools, Harry Wilson, Bingo Dawson, Ricky LaValle, and William Coombs. And, um, you know, it, it, it's one of my more heartfelt books. I'm speaking from my lived experience with all of these guys before they were all killed in some way or another. Um, William, of course, as I mentioned, he was an eyewitness to the Queen abducting children who never came back from the Kamloops Catholic School in 1964. He was to give a talk on that, and they killed him just before he was to do it by lethal injection. Bingo Dawson, present at all our church occupations. As a matter of fact, I mentioned that guy earlier, Gary Patterson, who administered St. Andrews Wesley United Church. Bingo went in there on a nonviolent occupation with other survivors. And um, Gary Patterson, and if you look at his picture, the guy has a very evil kind of smile. And because he's a very evil man, and you can quote me. Um, but he reported what Bingo did to the police. Less than a month later, Bingo was dead. So I believe Kerry Patterson had a role in his death. But Bingo was beaten to death on the street, beaten so badly his jaw was broken. Uh, cause of death, like with William, tubercular meningitis. You know, you can claim that about an Indian in Canada because they don't have status under the law. They're wards of the state. So you can kill them without legal consequence. Uh, Ricky Lavalle saw that. And he died after being a witness. And Harry Wilson, the first, actually, poor Harry, who was one of the first Native guys who ever came to me, he was a little guy living on the street all the time. And he was terrorized at a young age, experimentally, in the United Church um, Nanaimo Indian Hospital, drug testing, organ removal, electric shock, the whole bit. But he had the courage, even though he was penniless and could die at any moment, he had the courage to show up at our, our events, a courage I can't even begin to understand because he had no safeguards. As a matter of fact, I can understand it, because I know from my experience that when you take away all your safeguards, you've got nothing left to lose, so why not go for it? And thats I see that threshold breaking through now. People on the ground, it's only a minority, but compared to a couple of years ago, there's people breaking through that threshold of fear and into the place where they're not worried about themselves anymore, they're worried about the people around them and stopping these crimes now. And more of us, when more of us break through that threshold and find the courage of a Harry Wilson never to give up, and like me, never stopping, then we form that critical mass that's going to shift everything and that they can never destroy. And, I, you know, in that book, I went into a lot of personal experience with these guys, but I want to um, read something um, from, you know, just a quote from... Um, Fallen, the Vancouver Four, and you can see that on um, murderbydecree.com. All of my books are listed. And uh, give me a moment. Half a mo. Uh, there it is. Chapter three. It's just, uh, when I read this part, a quote from Sir Edward Bulwer Lytton, and actually the town of Lytton, British Columbia, is named after him. He said in the year 1868, he was the colonial secretary for British Columbia. He said, Colonization is civilization. If we, the superior race, take the land of these savages, we must utterly destroy them, the previous inhabitants. I may have to employ the Colorado solution and order every white man to kill every Indian in this province, unquote. He even has streets named after him. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, you know, that's the history of Canada, like every other colonized country in the world. And then my friend Delmar Johnny, who's dead now, he was a Cowichan elder. 
uh, another torture survivor from the Cooper Island Catholic death camp. He said, when I see my people coming out of the superstore every day, crowned with Coke and chips and all that shit, I see the genocide worked on us because it's never stopped. It's a big soul sucking machine that's eating up all of us. Well, in that regard, I want to just share this little thing I wrote. Um, it always struck just before dawn. A sharp whistle, the shouts of gruff voices in the foreign English tongue, and the plague would descend. It went after the children, and it spared none of them. We just sat on the beach for days and cried for our children, a very old New Chalneth woman told me once. None of them ever came back to us. Well, many of those disappeared children, and by the way, this is a great relevance to the court verdict and the warrants that you're going to be served. It relates to these Indian hospitals where so many children were tortured to death and used as guinea pigs in Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, and other drug testing experiments. Many of those disappeared children ended up in special hospitals whose existence will always remain hidden from Canadians. In the post-World War II years, when military research money was flowing in torrents, the doctors in those dank places normally had the cover of Canadian Air Force doctors. This could explain their continual use of wartime aviation terms when referring to their little test subjects. Over coffee or when chowing down at the base cafeteria, the German doctors would re revert to their native tongue and joke about the virgin targets that had just been delivered from them uh, to them from the local Indian residential schools or Catholic orphanages. Perhaps their use of the expression was part of their adoption by the culture that had given them the sanctuary after the war. For in the early months of 1945, Allied heavy bombers had annihilated in an hour many of their pristine German towns that had been previously unscathed. But one of these men was Oberstleutnant Otto Rayner, one of the SS doctors who went by the codename Major Bob Armstrong of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And he wanted payback for what happened to his barbecued family. By 1953, he was safely ensconced as a Canadian citizen, and he always requested of his RCMP handlers that Negroes and Indians and Jewish children be delivered to his laboratory at the Lincoln Park Air Force Base right outside Calgary. His sacred oath, after all, had been taken for life. Dr. Rayner became a popular figure in medical circles and in the United Church Hospital, where so many Indian children like Harry Wilson ended up. Rayner became especially close to the RCMP officers who provided him with the backup required by his AAA security status sanctioned by the Canadian Army and their colleagues in the Pentagon. And in the process, the SS doctor came to know a young policeman, a young RCMP officer named Peter Montague, and other members of a secret cult society that met at the prestigious Vancouver Club at 915 West Hastings, and still do, at certain nights of the year. The church provided Aboriginal children in Rainer's cages, and these children were useful in many ways, including to be delivered to the Vancouver Club. And it goes on there. And, you know, I wanted to just say that um, these are not made-up names. Those are the actual names of people. Um, Otto Reyna was an SS doctor. We have the SS2 tattoo number and everything. Uh, th this was common in Canadian hospitals. Canada was a recipient of more Nazi war criminals after World War II than any country in the world. They went to work for the U.S. space program. They went into the U.S. through the back door, through um, fake IDs provided by the Canadian government. But they also went to work in the Indian hospitals and residential schools. And the same genocidal methods were used against Native children and now against all of us. So in that regard, I, I want you to know that, you know, when we talk about the past, it's linked to the present. Because morally, and in every other way, we cannot do away with these crimes unless we look at the root cause of them and our own complicity. Now, there's the thing. It's easy to act like a victim and say, look what's happening to us. But there is no such thing as a victim because to some degree we cooperate in what's happened to us. We invite it in. We're part of it. You know, I, I used a story about when I was a, a young boy in Winnipeg. Every Sunday I'd go to the Westworth United Church in the 1960s, right at the same time that the same United Church was torturing all these Native children to death in its residential school death camps and Indian hospitals. And every Sunday, I took a white envelope and I put a dollar bill in it and I put it in the collection plate. Now, 20 cents of that dollar went toward what was called the Mission and Service Fund, and that was the fund that paid for all of these crimes. So there I am, eight years old, I'm contributing to a crime against humanity. I'm complicit under the law. Now, as you know, or may not know, 
ignorance of a crime is no defense under the law. You can't say, oh, I didn't know my father was hiding a murder weapon in the attic. Doesn't matter. matter. You're an accessory to a crime. I didn't know our, our church was torturing children to death. Doesn't matter. If you put money in that collection play to the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches, you're funding an ongoing crime and a past crime, and you can go to jail. Now, you don't go to jail because the criminals are still in power, and we can all, we've all profited from that system. But now that the system is blowing back and turning around to bite us all, we want justice. Well, it doesn't work that way because we contributed to it, and until we take direct personal responsibility for that, we'll never be free of it. So that's why I say to those folks who go on these freedom rallies, don't worry about the so-called enemy who's doing this to you. Look in the mirror and ask how you first being complicit in this. You know, and people, when having worked and being married into the Aboriginal world, my mom's family in Winnipeg, we have Métis and Cree relatives. One thing I learned growing up is that nobody wants to talk about, about that. They don't want to see the crime in our own backyard or even our own family. And... You know, the lesson from that is we have to take responsibility and then we have the basis to act justly. Because, you know, people say to me, how can we go to the need of people and help them? Well, you're not to help them. You're not supposed to help them. You're supposed to look in the mirror and say, and get off their back and get out of a crown system that's continuing to destroy them. That's why we established the Republic of Canada out of the common law court. These things are all linked. Genocide, the court case now, big pharma and establish in our own sovereign jurisdiction to try them and to end their reign of terror, that can only happen from a separate jurisdiction. In Canada, that's the Republic of Canada. And it's interesting, whenever we show police our Canada citizenship cards or our warrants, they always back down. They never stop us because they know that we're not in their jurisdiction anymore. And that's the thing. And that's one of the points in the common law training manual that I mentioned earlier about enforcement. You cannot enforce anything without your own sovereign jurisdiction because um, you're operating in their jurisdiction still by doing that. Now, that's another leap for people because we think people are always looking for simple answers. They want to say, oh, send me the warrant, tell me what to do, and then we'll win. No, it doesn't work that way. You've got to go through your own dark night. You have to lose in order to learn. The best education is a black eye. Everything else is designed to keep us comfortable and, and stupid. Go to page 47 in the Common Law Training Manual. There's a section called The Sovereign Basis of Common Law Courts. And if I leave you with anything today, along with that other stuff, look that over um, because it gives you the basis upon which all of this is happening. Let me just uh, read a quote from the English Revolution that overthrew King Charles and established a brief republic in England for 11 years. In 1649, the Parliament passed this law and it said, the commons of England assembled in Parliament declared that the people under God are the origin of all just power and have the supreme authority of the nation. Whatever is enacted and declared by the people alone has the force of law and all the people are included thereby with or without the consent of the king. Whatever is enacted and declared by the people, the commons has the full force of the law. Bang. That gives us the right to impose these warrants, these verdicts, use the warrants when the police say that has no standing under the law. Excuse me. It doesn't have standing in your criminal jurisdiction, but it has more standing under the law than anything you guys are doing. Where does your authority come from? From ourselves, but not just ourselves as individuals, ourselves gathered in a sovereign assembly. And this is what we've been setting up all over the world. Sovereign assemblies, 12 people get together, sign a charter, they become an assembly, they can pass their own laws, establish their own courts, and their own sheriffs. So we say time and again, you've got to learn this stuff to have a lawful basis on which to act. But no court can operate without a constitutional authority behind it, and that's what we're doing through the republic. So I won't belabor that point. It's just an important one, though, when people, these are questions that people need answered, and I hope you send people to this link. These shows are all posted by the next day at bbsradio.com slash here we stand. They go back six years, all of these programs, but direct them to this program because it's got a whole combination, as you know today, from having listened right through, I hope. Um, the evidence that we're using to arrest the folks in all over the world now, especially in Canada, the 
not just the evidence, but the basis of authority and what we can do right now. So we've got about five minutes left. And um, I wanted to, again, remind you of a few other things. The books that we draw on today, and a lot of the evidence you've heard and all of the, the, the whole theory and the facts that you've heard come from a number of books. You can see them all at murderbydecree.com. One is the common law, excuse me, one is the common law training manual. One is the uh, case for Canada. That's the argument in the program of, of the Republic of Canada, which is used as a, a guideline and basis for people all over the world setting up their own common law republics. And the other thing which I haven't mentioned today, which is a very helpful book, is called the Whistleblower Manual. Um, Truth Teller Shield, a manual for whistleblowers and hellraisers. In there, we talk about how you, do res you respond to the attacks of the enemy. Not only 50 very apt quotes from Sun Tzu about how to maneuver. For example, never attack an enemy who's larger than you where they're strong, always where they're weak. That's why we attack the public image and the money of the churches on Sunday morning and force them to admit genocide, or the government on their behalf to admit genocide. And in this book, the uh, Whistleblower Manual, you will see a description of how the state comes at you. For example, now all over the Internet, you're seeing revived once again after being dormant for a couple of years, the Smash Kevin Annett campaign, the Smear Kevin Annett, reviving things that the Mounties put out over 20 years about me. You know, the usual kind of lies and misinformation. The court doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. He was never a minister, blah, 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 despite all the evidence and records we have. That's all being revi revived right now so that you get distracted. I call it the three Ds, distraction, discrediting, and destruction. And they want you not to look at the evidence. They don't want you to look at the hard experience over 27 years that led to this. They don't want you to learn for yourselves and to act for yourself. So um, on that regard, I just got told I miscalculated. We only have 30 seconds left. And so um, I'm going to thank you all for listening in today. We're going to go out listening to Bob Marley and the Whalers. He's talking redemption song. Beautiful words. We are redeeming the world with our actions folks but it begins with you stay strong stay clear this is kevin annett eagle strong voice we'll be back next week murderbydecree.com i thank you